Today's passage is from Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32, the parable of the prodigal son. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Before we jump into this week's sermon, take a minute on each of the following three questions. You'll probably want to hit pause in between so you have enough time. In light of this parable, number one, who is God and how do I relate to him? Two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Three, in light of this parable, how is God calling me to love him, his church, and my neighbor more? After listening to this week's sermon, go back and spend a few minutes reflecting on how your answers may have changed or not. You may be surprised by the difference that Jesus makes. This week is part three of our series within a series on the three parables Jesus uses to illustrate what it means to be lost and found and rejoiced over by God. And we'll be honing specifically in on the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Now, while Luke 15, 1 through 2 makes it very clear that Jesus intends for the elder brother to represent the, quote, Pharisees and the scribes, it isn't necessarily their religious zeal or leadership position that earns, the, earns them that role in the parable. That's just the form or shape their elder brotherness takes. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller describes the heart, symptoms, and the results of the elder brother. He says this, the anger and superiority of elder brothers, all growing out of insecurity, fear, and inner emptiness, can create a huge body of guilt-ridden, fear-ridden, spiritually blind people, which is one of the great sources of social injustice, war, and violence. In short, Jesus is describing a very universal temptation toward self-righteousness. Now, I don't think I need to convince any of you that the consequences of self-righteousness is are severe, i.e. The, the social injustice, war, and violence that Keller lists. We live in a country and a culture that is increasingly polarized by it, especially politically. But it is for that reason, because it is so in the air we breathe and so easily assumed or taken for granted that we have to talk about two things. One, it's symptoms, and two, the spiritual illness that, give ri the spiritual illness that gives rise to them. First, Let's identify the symptoms. What does self-righteousness look or sound like? This is really important because it's not as obvious as I think we assume it is. It's easy to describe a self-righteous person whom you don't particularly empathize with. For example, a, a vocal supporter of the other political party. But self-righteousness is not an issue of volume, certainty, or conviction, whether religious or otherwise. The opposite of self-righteousness isn't a lukewarm or milquetoast agnosticism that avoids being opinionated for fear of offending someone else. 
Rather, it's what Tim Keller describes as anger and superiority in the quote I read earlier. To drill down even more specifically, I'm going to define self-righteousness as a joy-robbing resentment fed by, both, by the need to be both right in the right and wronged. Let me say that again. As a joy-robbing resentment fed by a need to be both in the right and wronged. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say that feeling resentful towards someone is the overflow of self-righteousness in our hearts, spilling out in our words and attitudes about or to others. It's a guarantee that we are elevating being right and wronged to the level of our identity. That is, when we're getting our dignity, value, and worth from comparison to others instead of God. Now, that said, one can absolutely feel both in the right and wronged in a given situation without necessarily feeling resentful. With a healthy helping of the benefit of the doubt, that's functionally what the elder brother would be expressing in verses 29 through 30 if it weren't for the conditional joy and refusal to join the party in verse 28, which itself exposes this elevation of those feelings to the level of need or identity, the overflow of which is a profound resentment that precludes him from celebrating his, his younger brother. That is the difference between feeling and needing to be in the right and wronged before God, others, or ourselves that leads to a self-righteous resentment. Now, that's kind of the foundation I want to build on. And real quick, I want to anticipate and validate something that many of you are likely thinking at this point, and, and that's this. There is, there is a lot <laughs> to be angry at in the world. Many of us are waking up to injustices that others have been dealing with their entire lives. Many of us are frustrated by unnecessary loss or grief stemming from the pandemic because of how people have handled it. Many of us have experienced deep hurt at the hands of people we love and trust. Anger is an appropriate initial reaction to all of that. But hear me, because this is, this is so vitally important. I cannot overstate this. The difference between the elder brother feeling right and wronged versus needing to be right and wronged is not mere anger, but whether that anger is tempered by a humility that forgives and seeks the genuine good of those in the wrong, or whether that anger is tainted with a contempt that only, quote unquote, forgives conditionally and seeks self-soothing penance from the other instead. Now, Self-righteousness is incompatible with forgiveness because it seeks to extract redemption from those who've wronged us rather than absorb the wrong visited to us on the basis of Christ's redemption. Another word for self-righteous anger is outrage, and it is a, a spiritual cancer. It is a slow-motion death clothed in high-minded language of fairness, but is literally antithetical to grace because it withholds forgi forgiveness on the basis of merit. In short, outrage chooses to feed resentment because giving up contempt for someone feels too much like giving over or to them our dignity, value, and worth when they don't deserve it. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating or blowing this out of proportion, let me back this up with some data. During the 2019 tour of his book uh, called Love Over Fear, Facing Monsters, Befriending Enemies, and Healing Our Polarized World, Dan White Jr., a Christian author, coach, and counselor, took a straw poll of 829 attendees of these events across 13 cities and discovered something deeply troubling. 
78% of those who identified as conservative said that loving enemies as, was compromise with immorality. 78% said loving their enemies was compromised with immorality. 76% of those who identify as progressive said that loving enemies was complicity with injustice. Let that just set in for a minute, right? Jesus' command, not suggestion, command, that those who follow him love their enemies as themselves is seen by almost 80% of eight, out of 829 Christians, not even as an option to be discarded, a good thing, but an actively harmful and or unfaithful thing. And it's in scripture. And that would be, that would be bad enough. But don't forget that this came from attendees at an event promoting a book whose subtitle included Befriending Enemies. So it also came from not just Christians, but a particular subset of Christians who, at, to at least some degree, wanted to hear more about loving your enemies. <laughs> that is why we dare not have contempt for the elder brother in this parable either. Because as soon as we do, we have become the elder brother. In this parable... Jesus, Jesus managed to, number one, call out elder brothers in the room, two, caution the younger brothers from responding in kind, and three, gently hold up a mirror to expose the elder brother depravity looking in, lurking in everyone's heart in order to humble the self-righteousness it exposes in us all. On the spot and all at the same time. <laughs> Jesus is a freaking genius. <laughs> uh, and this, I, I, I can't emphasize this enough. This is so relevant for all of us. Many of you are here at the table specifically. I'm not just talking to Christians in general. I'm, I'm talking to us, right? Many of you are here at the table specifically because you so identify with the younger brother in this parable and have been on the receiving end of the older brother's self-righteousness at some other church or maybe simply from within a cultural context that is far more conservative than Boulder County, which, frankly, that doesn't take a whole lot, right? I don't think it is a stretch at all to say that we, the table, as a congregation and community, are especially tempted to be self-righteous. Yes, you. And if you don't believe me, just ask yourself, have you ever said that someone else in your church family doesn't get it from a place of frustration? Have you refused to celebrate, see the good in, or otherwise made your relationship with someone conditional like the other elder brother did? Or maybe, here, here's something that's even you know, one level, level deeper, maybe you refused to let that relationship become conditional, unlike those old elder brother types, and you did it anyway because they wouldn't. Congratulations, you just reduced celebration to obligation, and that's not the gospel either. If your love requires being or setting yourself above anyone else, that is not the love of a God who lowered himself to lift up younger and elder brothers alike. We have a word for that, but it's not love. It's hate. And destructive hate is the unavoidable result of self-righteousness. If I'm still not 
bringing you along in this. Let me describe this from a slightly different angle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, describes the catastrophic effects of unexamined self-righteousness on and within a community. What is particularly powerful in this description is that he manages to show how none of us ever think we are being self-righteousness because of how it insidiously hides behind legitimately good and noble aspirations for Christian community. Here's what he says. He says this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. (laughs) He goes on. He says, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious, also known as self-righteous. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely well on the way to destroying it, for he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. (laughs) Can we just be honest with ourselves and each other? for a moment. There is literally nobody this does not apply to, myself included. Hear me, I became a church planter in part because everybody else is doing it wrong. Now, of course, I didn't say that because, duh, I know better than to say the quiet part out loud. We all know better than that, whether it's church planting or parenting or friendship or work or relationships or community or whatever. Just because we don't say it doesn't mean it isn't lurking in our hearts and infecting our motivations. If you think you are above this, you are this by definition. Welcome. You know what? Since we're being honest here, some of you are really hard to love. Yeah, I said it. And it's true. Some of you are a serious pastoral buzzkill sometimes. In fact, it feels pretty good just to say that, frankly. And you know why? Because I can be so self-righteous sometimes. And I'm so sorry. Frankly, it's easier to think and feel that than wrestle with the hurt and loss and disappointment of feeling like I'm never enough. And that's not your fault, that's mine. Self-righteousness is a fig leaf that tries to cover up fear and insecurity and inadvertently hides from the thing, the very thing that comforts us in the midst of fear and insecurity, which is the love of our Father. Just like all of you, I have my own wish dream as a pastor that I have to crucify daily lest it prevent me from experiencing our Father's love myself and thus compromise my ability to call and point you to the same. At the end of the day, I too make my joy conditional on others getting it. I try, I also too, I too try to build what only Jesus is qualified and equipped to build. I too take twisted, unsatisfying pleasure in being both right and wronged. I both hate and love being misunderstood. I too prefer to see myself as the younger brother and caricature others as the older brother. 
I too resonate far too much with Scott Sauls when he describes our insidious attraction to this self-righteous anger. When he says, outrage, whether hot or cold in its temperature expression, is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. Except it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it is a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as a disagreeable but fundamentally healthy reaction to negative stimuli like pain or nausea. Rather than admit that it's a shameful kick, we eagerly indulge in again and again. He goes on, he says, it is outrage porn selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish to get us off on righteous indignation. Let me pause and summarize where we've been so far because I want to make sure that conceptually we, were, we are tracking with what I've been hoping to do kind of emotionally and viscerally. And then we'll go one level, level deeper. In telling this parable to a mixed audience of both tax collectors and sinners, as well as scribes and Pharisees, Jesus is gently but unequivocally redefining lostness. Lest we think that the younger brother's self-indulgence is the only way we stray from the father's love, Jesus shows us that through the elder brother, that self-righteousness can also have the appearance of holiness and yet be every bit as spiritually lost and gone astray as his younger brother. Likewise, our valid hurt or anger is compounded and convoluted when we need to feel both right and wronged more than we need to feel our father's embrace. And this gets to the second half of what I want to talk about today, the spiritual illness that gives rise to those symptoms that I've mentioned and have been circling in on for several minutes now. Tim Keller aptly names it as insecurity, fear, and inner emptiness. Once we get past the caricature that we'd prefer to view the elder son through, once we are humbled by the reality that we are all both lost sons, the father's interaction with him reveals a profoundly tragic and sad reality that should help us have more compassion both for ourselves and others. And it's this. This son longed to be rejoiced over, but was too busy earning his father's love to ever experience it. It was always there. It was always his. It was always extravagant. It was always gratuitous, over the top, and excessive, while still not even coming close to encompassing his father's full affection for him. It was always satisfying and sustainable. It was always comforting for our fear and reassuring for our insecurities. But something kept him from it. I have no idea which came first, the chicken or the egg, and Jesus doesn't really say, but he does show that the degree to which we are self-righteous toward others is the degree to which we are robbing ourselves of the chance to experience the Father's love. In many ways, both self-indulgence and self-righteousness are two equal and opposite ways we try to resolve our insecurity, fear, and inner emptiness on our own rather than receiving the Father's love as our antidote. That spiritual insecurity common to every single one of us is why we are selfish. It is literally a tale as old as time. It was that same doubt of God's goodness that drove Adam and Eve to trust a snake in the grass over the word of their creator. Like them, we believe the lie 
that we can satisfy that longing by extracting from the father or in our vertical relationship as the younger brother did and others in our horizontal relationships as the elder brother did. One just uses God and one, the other uses others to feel better about themselves. They're different paths leading to the same destination. A lostness that is blind to how counterproductive, even sincere and altruistic efforts are to finding shalom from, for their insecurity, fear, and inner emptiness. That, <clears throat> that, my friends, is why Jesus intentionally leaves this parable unresolved. And did you catch that part? Did you catch that it's unresolved, that strange anticlimactic lack of closure at the end? Jesus doesn't ever tell us whether the elder brother accepts the father's invitation to join the party or not. He doesn't tell us whether he repents of his self-righteousness and in doing so invites everyone in the room to repent of their resentment toward one another and receive infinitely more satisfying embrace of their father. Jesus knows that just like everyone in the room that day. We destroy ourselves with spiritual navel-gazing, no matter how nobly framed or empathetically expressed. He knows that being other-centered, and in other words, love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself, being other-centered is the only means by which we can appreciate God's invitation to be found by Him, to feast on His affection, to taste and see that the Lord is so good and so gracious that he rejoices over every selfish person because every one of us is selfish. And thank God for that because none of us would ever know our Father's love if he didn't. And the degree to which we condition or limit his love for others is the degree to which we implicitly believe that we are worthy of it ourselves, thus diminishing the lovefulness of his love. I know I am demonstrating how much I am never at a loss for words right now, but I'm just trying to impart to you this reality. You have to be moved by the sight of the cost to bring you home. If you are moved by that, Welcome home. If you aren't moved by that, you have no idea how lost you are. My hope in saying all this is twofold. First, I hope to viscerally impart the truly bad news that we are all elder brothers compromised by self-righteousness, even and especially when we judge others to be elder brothers. And that if we aren't constantly uprooting that temptation in our hearts, it will take over your heart. Secondly, I hope to viscerally impart the unfathomably good news that we have a true elder brother who didn't sit on his hands while, he, while we strayed far from our father's love, but who left not just the 99 to find the one as with the shepherd seeking the lost sheep, but who left his father's side to come down, to condescend, to lower himself, to seek and save the lost. I mean, just think about that last part for just a second. Jesus is just, so meta in this, isn't he? He's sitting here telling a story and giving a sermon illustration, simultaneously exposing how we are all more lost than we know, while also flashing neon signs pointing to himself in that moment as the true elder brother. He is telling this parable and leaving the elder brother's invitation open-ended. And in doing so, Jesus is not doing what the elder brother in the parable did 
Jesus is doing what the elder brother in the parable did not do but should have. He is, in the very moment of that telling, leaving the father's home, not to satisfy himself as the younger brother did, but to seek and save his lost brothers, you and I. See, the culmination of the parable is not the elder brother's response to the invitation. It is Jesus' telling of the parable. It is an invitation about invitation. For those of you feeling a little beat up because you're just seeing how much of a self-righteous jerk, I'm sorry, uh, elder brother uh, you are, you need to hear and believe that the grace of the gospel is big enough to cover even that failure. It is not just the failure of commission, i.e. resentment. It is also the failure of omission, not loving as we ought that Jesus died for. The Father's invitation to elder brothers to join the party is made possible because Jesus paid the cover charge. He fulfilled all familial obligations as our true elder brother. And the open ending of this parable is his way of telling us 2,000 years later that this invitation has not expired, the party has not ended, and the Father is not tired of searching the horizon in the hope that all his lost sons and daughters would be found in him and rejoiced over by him. This is what Jesus invites us into. Will you take him up on it?